This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern, AB790. My guest today is Terry Tamanen. Uh, he's a distinguished uh, former secretary of Cal EPA, chief policy advisor to former Governor Schwarzenegger, CEO of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, and uh, headed up the Santa Monica Baykeeper Foundation, the Environment Now Foundation, uh, has a, such a long list of uh, achievements in the domain of environment. It would be hard for me to, to go through all of them and still uh, talk to uh, Terry. So I'm going to uh, thank you, Terry, for being on the show and uh, looking forward to talking to you. Thank you, Matt. Very nice to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and uh, where you come from and, and uh, how you ended up working in the environmental uh, domain. Well, sure. I uh, was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, about as far from the ocean as you can get. But my family moved out here when I was 12 and gave me a, a diving certification course as a birthday gift. And I discovered the undersea world and just became mesmerized by it. My family moved to Australia. I came back 10 years later to go to Cal State Northridge, go Matadors. And uh, I, uh, I went back to that favorite diving spot and was just uh, uh, distraught to see that all of the kelp was gone, that the rocks were just covered in, in some kind of polluted sediment. And that's when I first became aware of the impact that humans were having on the environment that, uh, in fact, polluted runoff from our streets, rainwater runoff from our streets, could actually kill an entire ecosystem that I had seen just, you know, 10 years earlier. And uh, so I became an environmentalist in the sense of, hey, you know, in those days, you send 10 bucks to the Sierra Club or the Jacques Cousteau Society or things like that, and uh, went on with my life in business and real estate and other things. And then uh, I think it was probably my midlife crisis in my 40s, I decided, no, I've, I've got to do something about this. And I met Bobby Kennedy Jr., who was heading up the Waterkeeper Alliance and forming local citizen groups to protect water, to use uh, uh, their voices, their early days of video cameras, uh, their other evidence gathering tools to try to highlight what was harming their waterways, in my case, the Santa Monica Bay and San Pedro Bay down by the LA River, and started the Santa Monica Baykeeper to do that. We also brought uh, citizen lawsuits against polluters that the Clean, Air, Clean Water Act allows us to do. And uh, from there, the, one of the foundations that uh, supported me was uh, the Environment Now Foundation that you mentioned in the intro, the late Frank Wells, who was the president of Disney. And uh, so we formed kind of a think tank to help others do the same thing. We created a dozen keeper programs all up and down the coast of California and in the Sierra Nevada mountains uh, with the Sequoia Forest Keeper. And, uh, and then came to the attention of, a, of an Austrian movie star bodybuilder guy who decided to run for governor. And, uh, and Bobby introduced me to, uh, uh, to, to Arnold and we hit it off. Uh, I'm a Democrat. He's a Republican. But we understood from day one that there is no Democrat or Republican air. There's no Democrat or Republican water. There's only clean air, clean water, et cetera, that everybody wants. And uh, so I helped him form a uh, environmental action plan that he campaigned on. And then uh, when we got into government, he appointed me secretary of the California EPA to implement that. And then later his chief policy advisor for the, the whole state. And uh, then when we left government in 2010, I started working with Pegasus Capital Advisors in New York on sustainable investing, realizing that uh, 
one of the most important ways to, to shift our economy to things that were, are more sustainable is to do it with investment to show that people can actually make money with uh, renewable energy and energy efficiency and waste optimization and, and uh, electric vehicles and all these kinds of things, just move the economy um, and started seven generation advisors to help other companies and other states and provinces and cities all over the world to do the same thing. Um, one of our biggest clients, as you mentioned earlier, was the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation for a number of years until that merged with two other foundations into the Earth Alliance and uh, now is off on its merry way in, in that alliance. Uh, and we now advise the UN Green Climate Fund on how to deploy uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into developing countries into these sustainability solutions as well. So that's quite a mouthful. And uh, along the way, I've written several books on these topics, uh, which I won't get into all the details uh, at this point, but everyone can Google them and find them at their favorite bookseller. Well, that is, that is a lot. And uh, it's a testament to somebody putting their focus on something and really uh, working hard at it for, it looks like, sounds like 30 plus years, you, uh, you built an incredible resume. Uh, take us back to the time that you were in government uh, as the former secretary of Cal EPA. What did you feel like your biggest accomplishments were uh, in that role? You know, first and foremost, uh, because I had been in the foundation, as I mentioned before, and, and helping nonprofits advocate with the state government on how to improve sustainability policies and environmental protection, we always felt like we were on the outside knocking on the door trying to get in. So now all of a sudden here, the inmate has taken over the asylum. And we not only had a chance to, to implement many of these policies and programs that we had planned out during Arnold's campaign. But we managed to get more people into public service. And I just want to say this to you and all of your listeners. Government gets a, a bad rap. I mean, sure, there's plenty of people that are doing stupid things or just marking time until their pension or what have you. But I got to tell you, there's just also a lot of very dedicated, hardworking people. And in many cases, we're not getting paid. So these volunteer boards and commissions, I mean, I'm sure most people have never heard of the State Water Resources Control Board and the regional water quality control boards in throughout California, the 11 regions, and other places where they could serve their community and actually have an impact on, on uh, keeping our environment healthy and safe. So being able to influence those kinds of appointments and recruit more people into public service is one of the biggest accomplishments, I'd say, that we had uh, as an administration, getting new voices at the table, especially environmental justice uh, concerns. But then I'd also mention our Million Solar Roofs Initiative, our hydrogen highway, which allows us to have electric vehicles powered by hydrogen, not just batteries, uh, our uh, uh, Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006, which set up a cap and trade system for carbon emissions and, and uh, set up a lot of ways for us to reduce our, our carbon footprint uh, in a very economically sound manner. So uh, uh, I'd say those were among our biggest accomplishments during that tenure. That, that's a lot. Uh, the question I have for you, follow up to that, is what were the biggest challenges you faced uh, in, in dealing with the bureaucracy as well and the legislature, uh, as well as, you know, what kind of led you to, uh, to go back to uh, private, um, you know, working with private foundations? Well, I'd say the biggest challenge is the one that we still face today across this whole country, and that's partisanship. And partisanship Sometimes for good policy reasons, we can have honest debates about 
what's the best way to accomplish something or what's the best way to allocate scarce resources like tax dollars and so forth. But when you have people denying science, settled science, and when you can see things like the case of climate change, wildfires uh, constantly getting bigger and more intense and more damaging uh, storms, you know, destroying our coastline and valuable coastal real estate, uh, you know, greater heat waves that are causing health problems and agricultural problems and so many other things. You just can't deny the science and, and then with a straight face say that you have a better policy solution. So unfortunately, it, it was partisanship. And there were many times in Sacramento when uh, I'd meet with legislators, and I hate to put this as a Democrat-Republican thing, but it very often was a Republican legislator who would say, hey, Terry, that, that bill that the governor is promoting or that you want us to, to pass, it totally makes sense. It's good for the economy, good for the environment, but I can't do it because if I went back to my constituents and said I voted for that, I'd, I'd never get elected again. So when you have politicians who are afraid of their own constituents and don't feel they can explain things to their own constituents, then we're, we're just painted into a corner that's very hard to get out of. Well, that is a challenge. And education of uh, our electorate is, is an important piece of this. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've uh, been talking about it so much on the radio is to, uh, to try to spread the message of why we should be doing this and that we can both have a strong economy and a green environment. So those things are not mutually exclusive. And I think that's something that uh, unfortunately gets painted into the picture as being it's one or the other. But uh, California is a great example of we've got some of the most stringent environmental regulations in the country, yet our economy has outperformed the nation over the last, you know, 50 years, uh, you know, year on year. So it, uh, it shows that you can have both. Uh, I guess I would like to kind of pivot to one of the things that uh, I find very important is the hydrogen highway that uh, you help promote and getting uh, that economy, that piece started. Tell us a little bit more about uh, what you did there and, and uh, how that came into existence. Well, we realize that uh, you know batteries are heavy and inefficient when a car has to lug them around, takes hours to recharge. And there is another technology that allows you to have the exact same electric car, call it a Tesla, call it whatever, but powered by uh, hydrogen, a tank of hydrogen, a gas, not a liquid like gasoline, but a gas uh, in your car that's converted to electricity on board. It's done by it with a fuel cell. And uh, it takes only five minutes to refuel. You, of course, you do need refueling stations, but with electric cars, you need a lot of places to plug in. So, of course, nobody wanted to bring the cars to the California market unless there were fueling stations. And none of the fueling companies wanted to build fueling stations if there were no cars. So we assembled the hydrogen highway network. We brought 200 stakeholders together to work on all of these issues, including insurance and safety regulations and so forth to try to get everybody on board. And as a result, today, we have thousands of hydrogen cars on the road and uh, 100 stations and growing. Well, that is a, a tremendous accomplishment. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790, your host, Matt Mattern, and uh, my guest, Terry Taminen, former Secretary of Cal EPA. We're going to be right back and talking about uh, hydrogen as well as many other environmental issues uh, facing our state. You're back with Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern. Again, my guest today, Terry Taminen, former Cal 
EPA Secretary, Chief Policy Advisor to former Governor Schwarzenegger. Um, so, uh, Terry, before the break, we were talking about this hydrogen highway, and uh, it's kind of near and dear to my heart because I'm on my second hydrogen car. Uh, I leased uh, one Toyota Mirai back uh, three-plus years ago and just uh, turned it in to get the new Mirai. Uh, and has even greater range, uh, greater range than my Tesla. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great car. So, uh, you know, without the foresight that you and Governor Schwarzenegger had, had to uh, roll this hydrogen highway out, uh, we wouldn't, that would not happen. And I think it's important for the listeners to note that California is really the only state in the nation that has this uh, network of hydrogen filling stations. And it's really kind of a, a sad commentary on the rest of our 49 states that they were not able to see what we had done and follow that lead, which I think that we should be doing in short order. And I don't see a whole lot of action by the Biden administration to to roll that out aggressively. And I'd kind of like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, uh, you know, there are other states. Florida has a program. Connecticut, because of one of the big fuel cell makers there, uh, has a program. Uh, Detroit, because of the car companies. Uh, And right now you can drive your hydrogen vehicle to Las Vegas or Phoenix and fuel up uh, even all the way up to Vancouver. Uh, So there are kind of a loose network of stations that are starting to fill in. And there are trucking companies uh, because a lot of uh, advocates for electric transportation agree that whether or not you you like batteries versus hydrogen, batteries are not practical for heavy-duty 18-wheelers and really big heavy-duty vehicles, uh, construction and so on, because the, the amount of batteries you need to lug that much stuff, especially up over mountains and so on, is so heavy that you make the truck very inefficient. And then, of course, you can't have it off the road for 10 hours, 18 hours to recharge all those batteries. Uh, so most people do agree that at least for heavy-duty electrification, you need something like hydrogen. And stop and think about what happened in Texas uh, a few months ago, where the entire power grid was down for days, in some places even more than a week. Well, if everybody was driving uh, an electric car plug-in, uh, they not only would have had no lights and no heat, but they would have had no transportation. So this is also just a diversification strategy. And battery cars are great for, for many people who, who want that. But of course, not everybody lives in a, in a single family home where they can go home at night and plug in or goes to a, a job where they can plug in during the day. So uh, at some point, we're going to run out of the people that are interested in plug-ins. And, uh, and more people, I think, will discover the flexibility and the convenience of a five-minute refueling in a hydrogen car that gives you the same electric vehicle experience. Right. The performance is great and there's zero emissions. The only thing it emits is water when it combines the oxygen and the hydrogen together to create that chemical reaction, which creates the power. So, And, and let me give you and your listeners some really interesting statistics. First of all, we produce about three trillion cubic feet of hydrogen in this country every single year. And the vast majority of that is used to strip sulfur from petroleum to make gasoline instead of simply putting the hydrogen in our vehicles. Uh, The second interesting thing is, you know, a lot of hydrogen today comes from steam reformation of natural gas. So people say, well, it's not such a clean fuel if you're basically getting it from natural gas. Uh, But uh, a lot of it also comes from uh, electrolysis of water. And you can electrolyze water. And one of the ways to do that 
is to take all of the excess uh, solar and wind power, which now California produces more wind power, especially at night when the wind is blowing and demand for electricity isn't so great. You could uh, run that, that excess electricity through wastewater from our sewage treatment plants to break the hydrogen out of water. Think of, you know, go back to your high school chemistry, H2O, the H is hydrogen. A little bit of electricity applied to water and you break the hydrogen out. Well, it turns out that the Los Angeles sewage treatment plant, the uh, uh, Hyperion sewage treatment plant, has uh, enough water that it discharges to the ocean, throws it away every single day, uses a lot of energy and money to clean it up and throw it away. There's enough hydrogen in that wastewater to power the entire United States transportation fleet from that one sewage treatment plant. Now, obviously, you wouldn't do that, but what that tells you is every city that's looking for revenue could turn their sewage treatment plants into a revenue center producing hydrogen fuel for the transportation sector instead of spending money to throw away that valuable resource. Well, it's uh, it's clearly the way of the future, and and uh, we need to be investing more money into this. And I do see that uh, some private industry is getting into the hydrogen field or has been in the hydrogen field, and it, you see them taking off a bit. So obviously, we need uh, even more investment. Where would you direct uh, the Biden administration to uh, focus their attention to uh, to roll this out more effectively? Well, I think they are doing a good job of focusing on electric vehicles because, again, the electric vehicle is the same, whether it's using a battery or hydrogen. So anything that brings down the overall cost of, of electric vehicles uh, makes them more convenient for people. And uh, and the fueling stations—that's the real thing. I mean, whether it's charging stations for batteries or refueling for hydrogen, especially along our interstates, where then the heavy-duty trucks can use it. But also, people live pretty close to an interstate throughout most of America, so you could sprinkle actually just a few hundred stations around, and people could drive all over this country with hydrogen. And then you add more stations as there's more demand. Uh, so I think they're on the right track. Maybe a little bit more into the into the refueling infrastructure. Uh, but we are certainly, as you said, the the poster child for for this. How you can do it, not just in terms of uh, the fueling and the cars, but the uh, safety regulations, the insurance regulations. Uh, what what happens when you locate a hydrogen pump next to the gasoline pumps in the in the gas station, uh, so that you have all these different kinds of fuels? And those are things which the federal government could work on to standardize across the country. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, very easy to fill up. It, it's just the same as filling up really gas. Uh, you know, very very similar process, and uh, it's it's not complex. So for those who may not have ever experienced it, it's uh, trying to demystify it that it's uh, it's pretty simple stuff, and um, and then you can drive for over three hundred miles on a tank, so you're getting more as much or more range than you'd get out of an electric car. So I think it's, it's it's a pretty effective technology. It is. And I, I'll just mention, uh, I drive the Honda Clarity, which is a fuel cell vehicle. My wife has the Numerai. We've also in the past had the Hyundai uh, uh, Nexo, which is an SUV that is a really terrific SUV. And all the car companies are, are beginning to come out with hydrogen vehicles now that they know the demand is there and the stations are going to be there. And for anybody who wants to learn more about this, I wrote a book a few years ago, uh, ago called Lives Per Gallon, The True Cost of Our Oil Addiction. And despite that ominous title and the fact that I do take oil companies to task for lying to regulators and harming the public with their products and so on, 
the, it does have a happy ending because the last chapter is all about uh, hydrogen and electrification of, uh, of vehicles. So you can learn a lot more about it in that book. Well, uh, everybody should pick that one up. I, I certainly will. Lives per gallon. I mean, we've we've obviously subsidized the oil industry for a uh, hundred plus years in so many different ways. So uh, when conservatives uh, raise hackles about subsidizing, say, for instance, hydrogen or other uh, alternative energy sources, I just think, well, what about the subsidies that we've given to the oil and gas industry? The, they're uh, the oil and gas industry is still getting ta- massive tax breaks for uh, investing in the oil business. So um, that why why shouldn't we be investing or subsidizing good behavior? Good behavior is cleaner energy. It's just it's why it's wise policy. Well, that's right, and it's American jobs. Um, you know, in in the book Lives Per Gallon, I calculate what we're spending to subsidize oil. And it comes out to about $7 a gallon more than whatever you're paying at the pump. So if you're paying $3 at the pump today or $4, it's actually more like uh, you know, $10 or $11 when you factor in the tax uh, breaks, the, uh, uh, the cost of, uh, of uh, people with health care that now we can directly affiliate to air pollution that's directly related to petroleum air pollution. Um, and that doesn't even include lost productivity. Somebody who has asthma and can't go to work or what have you, lung cancer. I mean, we're finding petroleum products in the umbilical cords of pregnant women from studies. Children lose uh, as much as 1% of their lung function every year if they live within a mile of a busy freeway. So the cost is actually enormous uh, in direct subsidies and hidden subsidies, and another good reason to make that switch. Right. So... You know, it's only a question of how we do it and, and how we can do it most effectively and efficiently. And uh, kind of pivoting to uh, the seventh generation advisors and the Pegasus Capital work that you've done on sustainable investments. What type of uh, success have you had in terms of getting investors to, to invest money into alternative energy and sustainable uh, resources? Well, today, I, I think renewable energy is just almost a non sequitur. It's just, it's just energy because solar is now much cheaper than coal or any other fossil fuel energy. Uh, wind has already proven itself. Um, and energy efficiency is the most important one because that reduces pollution and greenhouse gases overnight. I mean, if you change out a light bulb with an LED that's 70% more efficient, you save money. You pay for that light bulb. Uh, and of course, if, if it's a city doing it with street lights or whatever the energy efficiency retrofit is, it pays for itself. And that's another uh, really good investment opportunity for people. Well, uh, everybody, you're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Matter. And uh, we'll be back with uh, Terry Taminen, uh, former secretary of Cal APA. In just a minute, we're going to be talking about uh, the environment and how we can make a shift and make a change to uh, have a cleaner greener and healthy economy as well. We'll be back. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern. Uh, My guest, Terry Taminen, former secretary of Cal EPA. Uh, Terry, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the work that you had done for uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation and and, uh, what, uh, what successes you had there. 
Well, you know, Matt, um, Leo had started his foundation uh, about a dozen years ago to work on endangered species and their habitats. Uh, he had given significant money to World Wildlife Fund and others to protect uh, endangered tiger habitats in Nepal and, and uh, endangered reefs and other things around the world. And increasingly, he came to learn that all of those things were being threatened by climate change. So you could make a lot of progress setting aside land and, and protecting species, having captive breeding programs, whatever. But none of that was going to matter if we didn't get ahead of climate change. So in 2016, he asked me to come into the foundation and help him build a climate program and expand his work and include uh, the United States, because previously most of his grant making had been out of the U.S., and uh, we started with two people and a million dollars a year uh, in grant making uh, in 2019 uh, when we closed the foundation to merge it with two others into the new Earth Alliance that he's part of. Uh, we had 20 people and uh, $25 million a year in grant making and activism. And uh, we were supporting things like the Our Children's Trust uh, lawsuit against the federal government for stealing their, their future, in essence. Uh, because of failing to address climate change. So we were supporting activists in the Amazon, indigenous people all across the, the world, including in the Amazon. Um, and we had a, a very active climate program working on advancing things that were economically viable for people around the world and, uh, and, and trying to tackle this from ways that most people weren't thinking about. What are some of the ways that you think uh, others weren't thinking about that were particularly uh, useful or effective? Well, I'd say uh, one thing is, of course, awareness. And obviously, with Leo's ability to, to get eyeballs and now in the days of social media to get people to pay attention and take action, that uh, the movie he made before the flood, and if anyone hasn't seen it, if you want to learn more about climate change, I recommend investing just three hours, one and a half hours to watch Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and set aside if, you know, if you're on the right side of the aisle and you don't like Al Gore, just don't listen to those parts. But in that movie, he brings in scientists and he predicts what's likely to happen. Well, then Leo comes along 10 years later and makes the movie Before the Flood. Uh, and that is basically looking at what was predicted and what happened. And of course, everything that was predicted in, in Inconvenient Truth happened faster and worse. And so it's a great way to learn about climate change and learn about the evidence and, uh, and then learn how to take action just by watching those two films. Uh, so we did that. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, there was also just a lot of work that people weren't thinking about in terms of, uh, you know, everyone, as we mentioned before, thinks about electric vehicles and, and renewable energy, but they don't think about waste. You know, everything that goes through our garbage cans every day goes to landfills, uh, decomposes into greenhouse gases or just gets buried. And, you know, we cut down forests uh, every day and then literally throw them away into landfills. We uh, some of it gets recycled, of course, but not enough. Uh, every day we march armies around the globe to kill people to get a barrel of oil, and then we refine that into something, including plastic, and then we throw it away every day in the form of plastic and landfills or goes out into the ocean. Um, and the list goes on and on. We could really solve many of the sustainability challenges if we would just end the concept of waste. And the really exciting thing is now 90% of what goes to landfills, what goes through our trash cans, could be recycled with modern technology, could be turned back into feedstocks to make new products and materials. So it's really a very exciting investment uh, sector as well as just a sustainability one. Well, I guess uh, on that front, uh, I know China had kind of closed their doors to a lot of our waste, which they had been taking a lot of our stuff to our plastics. Um, 
where where is the United States now in terms of dealing with our our waste, our recyclable material? Uh, are we recycling what we're putting in our bins and uh, doing it effectively? You know, humans are just not very good at it. I mean, even at our best, we were recycling about 37% of what could be recycled in America. In Europe, they're also only about 39%. Germany and Denmark are better at 65%. But on average, Europe is no better than we are. And, and that's the leaders. Everybody else, I mean, a lot of developing countries, the recycling rate is zero. Humans are just not that good at it. But I can take you to facilities here in Los Angeles that are using technology. Just put it all in one bin. Don't even try to recycle it. Put it all in one bin. They will uh, use technology to separate it out. In fact, uh, speaking of Schwarzenegger, it kind of looks like some futuristic Terminator machine uh, where it all goes in one big hopper in the beginning and it comes out at the end as bundles of clean cardboard and paper and glass and plastic and so forth that can easily then be converted back into something else. And when China closed its doors to taking our recycled content, they actually did us a favor because it forced us to say, well, what are we going to do with that stuff? So first of all, we've got to get better and more efficient at recycling, uh, which is, as I mentioned, now with technology we are doing. Uh, but then the second thing is, what do we do with it? So, for example, there's a company called Fulcrum Bioenergy that just built a plant in Reno, Nevada, that is uh, processing thousands of tons of, uh, of waste that would otherwise go to landfills uh, after as much recycling as they can do. The, the waste that would still go to landfills is being converted into low-carbon jet fuel that's being purchased by United Airlines and Cathay Pacific, and it qualifies for the California low-carbon fuel standard that we put in place as part of our work in the Schwarzenegger administration. Um, and there's a lot of this innovation now that's happening right here in America because we were forced to keep our own waste right here. Well, that's a, that's a good story. And I guess the question is, how do we encourage more of that? What are we doing in the state of California to encourage more of that? What is uh, the federal government doing and, and what is the Biden administration doing to encourage more of uh, effectively recycling our waste so that uh, we put less carbon out into the into the uh, atmosphere. I don't think the Biden administration has really addressed this yet, but they will. And my advice would just be copy California. I mean, uh, we start with policy. For example, we uh, set a goal all the way back in 1990. We said that by 2005, we would have to divert at least half of the waste that was going to landfills. We'd have to divert it either by reducing it, reusing it, or recycling it. And in 2005, when I was EPA secretary, coincidentally, I had to certify that we had achieved that goal. And in fact, we had exceeded it. We had uh, hit a 55% diversion rate from that 1990 baseline. And now we're setting a target of 75% and even imagining zero waste in this state. And many companies are doing the same. Walmart, for example, is down to a zero waste profile here in California. They're trying to copy that throughout the rest of the United States at all of their facilities. Um, and so just copy California. We also did a, a landfill ban on electronics. We said that was one of the biggest uh, waste sectors that was growing with, with everybody having so many electronic devices now. And uh, so we put a landfill ban in place, but we realized you can't just ban something uh, from the landfill and then wonder what's going to happen to it after that. So the statistics showed us that we could incentivize a whole new industry to recycle that electronic waste if we just gave a small incentive to the recyclers. So today, if you go buy a television or a computer in California, you pay $4, $5 recycling fee. 
uh, even if you're not turning in your old device, but under the assumption that you probably will. And then that money is used to incentivize the recyclers uh, about 40 cents a pound for every pound that they recycle. And that makes up the difference of what it takes to, to make these industries very profitable and make them help them learn how to get more valuable recycled content out of all this e-waste. But it keeps tons and tons of waste out of our landfills. It harvests plastic. It harvests valuable minerals and, and, uh, and metals. And so that's all stuff we don't have to dig up landscapes to get from somewhere else, all because we set a good policy that was uh, incentively and, and economically driven. Well, I guess the question is the Biden administration copying California. And uh, I know they've got a lot on their plate and, and uh, sometimes it's a matter of prioritization and sometimes you're hitting your top priorities first. But uh, um, do you, uh, have you been following the work that they've been doing closely and, and what do you see they're hitting the A pluses on and what are they uh, missing uh, on a little bit? Well, I'd say, first of all, the, the A-plus is their personnel. Uh, Gina McCarthy, who was the uh, Connecticut EPA secretary when I was California EPA secretary, she went in and ran the EPA uh, under Obama. And then uh, now she is in the White House coordinating climate and sustainability policy across all the different agencies. Uh, John Kerry, our former secretary of state, who uh, made climate change a very important issue when he was secretary of state as you know, was appointed ambassador uh, to, to go out to the world and get us back onto the world stage. And this is not just a matter of us bragging and saying, oh, we can do this and we can do that. This is an opportunity for American economy to flourish. So just take that example I mentioned before of fulcrum bioenergy. That's a technology that can be exported all over the world if we are active in solving the climate crisis and we're telling other people, hey, you should follow our technology lead and have low carbon jet fuels and other kinds of fuels made from waste. Well, no one else is doing that. So this is a chance for us to export our technologies, create American jobs. And, uh, and that's an area where, again, I think the Biden administration has excelled so far. Well, that's, that's clearly the uh, wave of the future and, and clearly how we should be looking at this as a crisis that has an opportunity. And the opportunity is to create those industries that do, that do provide uh, green energy, that do recycle, because every country is going to need that going forward. And uh, so, and every country is going to want that. And if we're the leaders, uh, obviously our economy is going to benefit from it. So it is such a win-win situation here. Uh, can't see how anybody could uh, oppose that. So uh, you're listening to United Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, and we'll be back in just a minute with Terry Tamanen, former secretary of Cal EPA, to talk to us about the environment and what we all can be doing on a grassroots level to help change. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern, your host, Terry Tamanen, a former secretary of Cal EPA is, uh, is our guest today. And Terry, I wanted to circle back to a topic you had spoken about earlier, which was the, um, all the hydrogen that is uh, used for the oil industry. And uh, if you could discuss that a little bit more, um, that, I think that would be very useful. Well, as I mentioned, we make a lot of hydrogen in this country every year uh, to process petroleum into fuels and other things uh, instead of just putting it into our vehicles. 
And uh, uh, there's no question that, uh, that hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. It just doesn't occur in the air or in some other natural way that we could take it out of the earth as is. We have to break it out of, uh, out of uh, various materials, whether it's water or uh, anything that's got carbon in it. So that's one of the nice things about hydrogen and about the local economy. So as I mentioned before, you can get a lot of hydrogen out of sewage water that you're currently spending money to, uh, to clean and pump into the local rivers or out into the ocean uh, from a, a city. But you can also get it from waste. Organic waste can be turned into uh, hydrogen with uh, digesters and uh, 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 farm waste, uh, especially from animals, animal manure and so forth, uh, can be turned into hydrogen. So whatever you have can actually be turned into a sustainable source of your transportation fuel, and it creates a local economy with things that are already there. Well, it, you had mentioned uh, there were three trillion units, and I didn't quite get the units that you were referring to that were being used for the oil industry currently uh, hydro of hydrogen. Right, three trillion cubic feet a year of uh, of hydrogen is is uh, produced mostly from steam reforming natural gas. So. They take natural gas and uh, run some, some hot steam through it, and it breaks it up into uh, the different components of gases, and they can harvest the hydrogen that way. And of course, the criticism uh, by some is that you're still getting it from a fossil fuel, uh, but uh, it's a cleaner fossil fuel than, than petroleum. And, uh, and the fact that you can actually make it from so many other sustainable sources is the real issue. Right. And then uh, it can be used to power vehicles that have zero waste versus powering a um, a gas-powered car, which is going to have a lot more uh, carbon emissions and, than, obviously, a hydrogen vehicle would. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's also a thing of uh, flexibility of having these different fuels that can, that can power us. And, for example, I mentioned earlier that we have a lot of wind power that runs at night in Texas and across the Southwest and here in California. In fact, we even have to curtail it, as, as the saying goes, which is literally zapping it into the ground because there's more produced than we can use or uh, selling it to neighboring states where we actually pay them to take the electricity. Well, if instead we use that to electrolyze water and get the hydrogen out, we could use that hydrogen for stationary applications as well. I mean, fuel cells can also power buildings and uh, entire power grids. So you could use it then for transportation or for powering the grid. Right. I heard of a big project they're doing in Utah where they're putting uh, the trying to store the hydrogen in big caverns there, which would deal with the problem that you're talking about, which is this excess electricity off the renewables that could be uh, pumped into this cavern and uh, saving it as hydrogen. I don't know the chemistry behind it, but the, as hydrogen, essentially, and then uh, using it later uh, to power things. Well, sure. And we do that already. Uh, in fact, here in Southern California, we have several uh, underground storage facilities for natural gas. Uh, there's a lot of natural gas produced uh, around Texas and, and so forth that gets shipped out here throughout the summer when we don't use that much because we're not heating our homes. And it gets put into the ground uh, and stored in what are you know, kind of like the way aquifers store water. These are geological formations where you can store gas under pressure. And then it's brought back up during the winter when there's more demand because of uh, heating uh, uh, demand. And uh, so we can do the same thing with a hydrogen gas. So, uh, Terry, what are you working on now? What are the things that are kind of front and center on your plate? 
Well, I think one of the most important things is finance. We've got to get more investors comfortable, whether it's an individual who wants to put their money where their mouth is, or whether it's the major pension funds, uh, or whether it's even big foundations that uh, are giving grants to nonprofits to do good environmental work. But then you say, well, where's their endowment invested? And it turns out it's in fossil fuels or all kinds of things that are, are actually not productive for sustainability. And uh, so I think we've got to move more investors. One of the things I'm working on is with the UN Green Climate Fund uh, in, a, in a blended product. It's called our Subnational Climate Fund, which is a mouthful, but basically it's working with subnational governments, meaning states and provinces and cities, to help them finance their climate solutions like renewable energy, energy efficiency retrofits, waste optimization, like we talked about, even uh, sustainable agriculture. And, uh, and the reason that you can do that in some of these developing countries where people might think it's too risky to invest is because the Green Climate Fund comes in and puts about 20% of the investment up there for you uh, as the first loss position. And also they look for a, a much lower return than regular investors on these kinds of uh, projects. So you end up with a blended capital model. You bring in conventional investors to do the rest and they uh, take less risk. They get a higher return and are therefore willing to deploy their capital in places and to projects that they otherwise might not. So I think that's really a, the, the way of the future is to, to get more people to put their money where their mouth is uh, and realize that if you care about public health, if you care about the future of the planet and your, and your kids, that you can't keep financing business as usual. Well, that is uh, very true. So how much uh, in the way of funding does this uh, UN uh, green Climate Fund have, and what is it shooting for? Well, it was formed uh, back in 2009. Some might remember that in 2009, President Obama went to Copenhagen for one of these conference of the parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change that happened every year, the COP as it's called, and uh, with other world leaders tried to get a new global agreement on climate change. That didn't happen, but this, this Green Climate Fund did emerge from that where uh, wealthy countries put money in to be invested in these developing countries to help them develop green and avoid uh, some of the pitfalls that we did building our economies on, on dirty fossil fuels. And so there's uh, uh, tens of billions of dollars available right now, and the money goes quite a ways. I mean, we put up very little of that, the U.S. taxpayer, because there's so many other countries that are contributing. And uh, basically, every dollar that the U.S. taxpayer puts up ends up being about $100 of investment uh, in terms of leveraging all the other sources of capital, both public and private. And, uh, and then, like I said, I think it's really just a good investment in American jobs, because what is it these other countries want? They want American technology for energy efficiency and renewables and waste optimization. Uh, I mentioned this fulcrum bioenergy, for example, before that's converting waste into jet fuel. Uh, there's projects that are planned now in India and Mexico. And those will be financed by this uh, Green Climate Fund with private investors, but where the Green Climate Fund helps to take out some of the risk. I, I guess that uh, is a, an enormous concern going forward is that many of the largest polluting countries are poorer countries and they don't have very robust uh, environmental protection. Um, my understanding is the EPA in Mexico is almost toothless, and uh, and um, certainly that's a, a problem for us. How how can we deal with that uh, that problem going forward? Well, I think it's by it's by spurring the economy and realizing, especially coming out of COVID and the recession that's happened 
especially in many of these developing countries, even worse than here, that there's economic opportunity. So I work, for example, on 18 projects in Western India in the state of Gujarat, where we're working with 18 municipalities to help them get the same technology we have here in Los Angeles to convert all of their waste into valuable feedstocks, green chemicals, materials that can be put back into production. And think about it, you know, if you're starting a company and uh, you want to make something, the first thing you have to say is, well, where am I going to get the raw materials to make my product? Well, imagine if there was already raw materials sitting in a city and they were willing to pay you to take it. Well, that's what exists with waste all over the world and especially in India. They're paying people to pick it up and take it to a landfill, just like here in the U.S. Instead, they could be taking it to a place that converts it back into usable products and, and materials. And that creates local jobs. It solves local environmental problems of uh, materials washing into the waterways or decomposing into air pollution and greenhouse gases. Uh, and so when you show people that they can do this with economic opportunity and jobs, I think that's the quickest way uh, to, to help these countries out of poverty, but also to protect their environment and the shared global environment. Well, certainly that is the path forward, Terry. And uh, you... Uh have eloquently stated how we can do it. I guess uh, still we have concerns of can we do it quickly enough and uh, and what can we do to hasten these, the uh, speed of this change so that we avoid environmental disaster. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have much time for you to, to give a short uh, quip on that. Uh, but um, you know, if you had a sentence or two or three, uh, what uh, would you advise the listeners to uh, to do and start taking action uh, to help the environment? Well, that's it. Is it really is also up to all of us, not just government and big business. Uh, on my Seventh Generation Advisors website, that's seven th advisors, Seventh uh, Generation Advisors dot org. Um, you can find the Personal Climate Action Center with all kinds of tips of things you can do that will save you money, help you reduce your carbon footprint, clean up the environment in your neighborhood. So taking those personal actions makes a difference. And Shakespeare said, nature's bequest gives nothing but doth lend. And so when nature calls thee to be gone, what acceptable legacy canst thou leave? Well, I think if we all take personal action and teach others to do the same, that we will not run out of time and we will be able to pass a better environment on to the next generation than we inherited from the last one. Well, uh, amen to that. Uh, thank you, Terry, for being on the show. Uh, everybody check out seventhgenerationadvisors.org. And uh, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America. Our guest today, Terry Taminen. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Terry. And uh, we'll be uh, looking forward to talking with you in the future.